This episode is sponsored by the Remax Collection, seasoned real estate agents who help open the door to the most luxurious homes and properties worldwide. Visit remax.com forward slash luxury to learn more. Each office independently owned and operated. This is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full Time Travel. And every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today could teach us all a thing or two about mind over matter. Jimmy Carroll is a former British Army officer who now puts his precision planning expertise to good use as the co-founder of Polaris, a travel company that creates bespoke trips for travelers seeking unique experiences. In 2020, after a year of COVID lockdowns, Jimmy and three friends embarked on the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, a 3,000-mile unsupported race from the Canary Islands to Antigua, known as the world's toughest rowing competition. For 36 days, the team rowed in alternating two-hour stints for 24 hours a day, through storms, sleep deprivation, and an unexpected attack from a 12-foot blue marlin. It was an experience that pushed them to the limit of their resilience, but one that was also full of profound beauty and awe. Join us as we discuss the importance of vulnerability when building a united team, the ferocious magic of close encounters with wildlife how challenges help us grow as individuals, and why we should all be taking better care of our mental health. First of all, welcome. It's so great to meet you. Thank you. Likewise. (laughs) I I usually start by asking people, where did your love of travel originate? (laughs) (laughs) I have been nomadic all my life and also been very institutionalized in a very British way by being sent off to a British boarding school from the age of seven. Seven? So, from, oh, so young. Yeah. But I suppose predating that, I, my parents were a British, that I was born in Canada, in, in Calgary. Uh, so it probably it started you know, before I was even born, that kind of nomadic nature. And I'm very lucky to have a Canadian and a British passport, so dual citizenship which is fantastic. And uh, that has uh, really gone all the way through the rest of my life. So from the age of seven, I was boarding. My parents actually asked me if I wanted to come home and live at home. And I said, good God, no, why would I want to do that? I miss being with all my friends and doing all the activities when, for me, you know, traveling backwards and forwards, 14 minutes to home and school uh, each way would have just been a waste of time. So it's really been instilled from a very young age. And then as soon as I got the opportunity, when I left school at the age of 18, I toured the world uh, for 10 months and went all the way around the world. And I, that was something I wanted to do for you know, years and years and years and been kind of planning and thinking about. And finally, yeah, after leaving school, managed to put that into action. I feel like you're probably someone who has many different stories that you could share for the podcast. Um, yeah, but, but obviously we're going to focus on one particular one, which was this epic row that you did. But before that, I want to talk about the fact that you were in the military for a while mm. in the UK. I'm always intrigued about what inspires someone to join the army because <laughs> I feel like, 
you know, it's a very specific type of environment. It's like high pressure, maybe low predictability. Like what was it that drew you to that lifestyle? So I actually had two gap years. It's the second one I came back and I wasn't going to go to university. I wanted to get into work. So I went and worked in the city uh, for six months. And really it was then that I was like, crikey, there's got to be more to life than being in the city. Were you, were you, a, were you working in finance? When you say the city, do you mean in, in finance? finance? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I had a great time. You know, as young, I was 19, I was earning some good money and, you know, there's back at this stage, there's good parties as well. And it was all pretty loose, but the idea of traipsing in and out to the city, Canary Wharf on a tube every single day, I thought there's got to be more to life. And someone said to me, well, how about the military? And so I said, tell me more. I've really not been too interested in it before. They said, well, you could do three years. A year at Santos, three years return to service, and maybe in leadership and management, and then you know get out after that. You'll still be twenty-five, say. And I was like, that sounds quite interesting. So I went forward for the officer selection um, in Westbury in, in the UK, and passed uh, both rounds of that. And amazingly, they gave me a birthday to university. So I thought, right, I better look at going to university. A lot of my, well, 99.9% of friends are all at university having done their first year. And I thought maybe I'm missing out on something here as well. So I enrolled in uh, Newcastle University and uh, read business and economics uh, because that's what I've really been quite interested in through school. And I thought that would set me up pretty well from leaving the army, you know, pretty transferable. So I got the bursary and I went off to Newcastle and little did I know that at Newcastle I'd meet a whole group of uh, individuals who were all going to join the army. And I think from my year when I left Newcastle in June 2005, 28 people from Newcastle and Durham University ended up going to Sandhurst, the Royal Military Academy, in September 2005. And Actually, all five other housemates were a group of six in our house. We all joined the army together. Um, so that was quite lovely. For what is a grueling 44 weeks at the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst, uh, lots of people come out hating it. I took very much the attitude is that you can spend a whole year hating it or you can just get on with it and laugh at some of the idiosyncrasies of what was going on and you know, make the most of it and you know, make some great friendships. And actually, I made great friendships throughout not just my peers, but a lot of the staff as well. And you know, so those friendships still last now today as well, which is, which is a lovely thing. Uh, and then I commissioned in August 2006 into a small reconnaissance regiment called First the Queen's Dragoon Guards otherwise known as the Welsh Cavalry, who predominantly recruit their soldiers from Wales and the border counties. And uh, the beauty about um, the Formation Reconnaissance Regiment, as it was at that stage, is that they are much smaller than big infantry battalions, so you're much closer knit with, with your soldiers. And I had uh, a troop of 12 people uh, and four vehicles uh, under my command. And we're very close knit. And so hierarchy is, is always there. Absolutely. But when we're operating as a troop on that 12, you know, it is very much on, on nicknames and you're really living in each other's pockets. And, and I've 
very much connected very well with that. Um, it was far more personal and you really got to know you guys. And so I think three days after commissioning from Sandhurst, I found myself in Iraq and doing long range desert patrols on the Iran Iraq border, uh, which was fascinating and being resupplied by a Hercules aircraft or helicopter drops every 10 days. And yeah, I lived out in a desert for, you know, I think it was about 37 days was the longest stint. And um, just being resupplied by my plane and helicopter. Uh, and then finally got allowed to come back into camp for three or four days to freshen up before going back out again. So, um, pretty fascinating, uh, a very quick way to learn your trade uh, and cut your teeth. And then, uh, the QDG and the Queen's Dragoon Guards was based in Germany. So then returned to Germany and then we quickly found ourselves in the operational cycle of Afghanistan. Uh, so I deployed to Afghanistan for two tours of seven months each. The first of which was 2008, September 2008 through to March, April, uh, 2009. And then again, the same uh, time of year, September 2011 to March, April, uh, 2012. So pretty full on, uh, times in the Afghanistan, um, war. And, uh, based up in Helmand province and the first tour was up in the Sakala. So right in the heart of it. And that was pretty kinetic. Mm. Um, but, you know, friendships bonded for life and, you know, we, we lost a few people. But I think my main take on that is that you very much, you worked for the people left and right of you and the camaraderie of your guys and being very close knit. Everyone doesn't matter what rank you are, you support each other. But also, I really love you know, the sense of friendship and welcoming the Afghan people had, and the Pashtun Wali uh, meaning of bringing people into your home and you know, offering you what they have and making you feel at home and their guest. And you know, the Afghan people have most of them, especially in Helmand, have very little. You know, possessions and you know, it's a pretty hard life but they would come they welcome us in and they knew that the complexities of that and the Taliban would find out that you know, it couldn't be that great for them uh, but they'd still bring us in um, and you know, offer us tea and refreshments and food and even safe haven at times Obviously, that's an experience that I imagine involves a lot of, you know, adrenaline, excitement, a lot going on. And also, as you mentioned, this camaraderie between you and your fellow officers. When you came out of the army, did you feel like you were chasing that same sense of excitement and connection in other ways? And did that lead you to do more like endurance and adventure type experiences? Yeah, I, I, there is no greater adrenaline rush than I think going to war. And that is something that you have to deal with and you have to learn how to manage that. And so you'll find a lot of people coming out and, you know, they buy a motorbike because they can go incredibly fast on it and, you know, be on the edge of that speed thing. People skydive, you know, they, they rock climb and all of these different aspects because you know, part of that, especially when you've been exposed to it for seven months and you're shot at and, and you have that element of camaraderie, as you say, it becomes like a drug. 
um, you know, a rush that you want to get, that hit of dopamine in many respects. So when I, when I was in the army, that the Norse were absolutely leaving, it was how do I find those different stimuli um, now? And I think that very much put me to a place where I wanted to drive myself um, and using the classic term, put myself in the hurt locker. And that's where you have this battle over physical prowess and stamina, but mental resilience. And I'm a firm believer that ultimately, if you look at it, really, none of us should be able to run ultra marathons, you know, do endurance based events and you break it down. But, you know, there's millions of people that are able to go down the body would actually you know, carry on because you get through barrier in a marathon people talk about hitting the wall I and mean, then once you go through the wall you know you can complete it and where's that going to happen is it mile 16 17 18 20 who knows everyone's different and i think you know some pretty infamous people like david goggins you know, his ex-special forces in, in america has talked about this uh, um, and ross edgley uh the uk you know, extreme athletes who swam around Great Britain. So really in us, our body will tell us that we're going to shut down when we've only hit 40%. You know, and there's actually another 60% left to go you know, because your muscles hurt too much, you know, or you're starting to hit that wall. Actually, you've only got to 40% uh, and there's so much more to do. And that's the mental resilience piece. And I think that's what really drives me uh, forward in wanting to seek out challenges and to push myself further. And I think you learn so much about yourself as well. And it's an emotional roller coaster. It's not just about the hurt and pain that you're going through, be that muscle fatigue or, you know, your body absolutely aching. You know, I, I've been on endurance events where you know, some woman that you're you're laughing, uh, and then 30 seconds later, you're crying, and you're not quite sure what's going on, but that's the emotional roller coaster, that mental resilience coming in. That can also make it quite enjoyable. <laughs> Have you always been a mind over matter person? Have you always managed to cultivate that? Do you think it's something that is innate in people that you're born with, or is that something you have to work at? I think there's an element of you know, what you're born with, but how you're brought up as well. And I would actually say that going to a boarding school at the age of seven, you had to get over that. And I'm not afraid to say, you know, I got tremendously homesick and found it very challenging at times to go back at the beginning of the new school term. But you had to get on with it. And there's that old school British kind of stiff upper lip moment. You know, that's it. There's no one here to help you. And so you've got to go out and you've got to make friendships. You've got to engage with people and you've got to get on with it to yourself. Um, and I think that probably from a very young age very much came through in you know, everything I'm doing later on in life, for sure. And then elements of the military and what I was doing there, you know, they, they certainly trained me um, for, for that. And um, some of the courses I did would have absolutely aided in that, for sure. I think also now, because the way you know extreme athletes um adventurers are being talked about and they're so readily available in the palm of your hand by able to follow them on instagram you know whatever platform they are that we're learning far more about you know mental resilience and this ability to push yourself 
and the other piece for me is that I very much know how I work and operate in terms of when I work it, uh, in the business. I also need, know how I need my releases um, in order to reduce stress, uh, but also to give me clarity of mind in able to go into a meeting, etc. Physical exercise is absolutely one of those. And I remember my my mother and my father, probably in my early teens, like, you need to go outside and have a run. You need to go and do something. You know, the classic saying, letting off steam. So I'd love to move on to this amazing race that you did. When did you first hear about it? It's known as the world's toughest rowing competition. What about that was appealing to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I tried to end my hat entered the world's toughest running competition, Marathon de Sable, back in 2014. What is that? And, and that is seven marathons in seven days across the Sahara Desert, carrying everything you need for the duration, minus water. So you get water refills, um, but your food and the clothing and the bedding, essentially, that you need to sustain yourself, you have to carry. And I'd done all the training with a group of three friends and unfortunately dislocated my shoulder and had to have it reconstructed two weeks before. I was adamant about still doing it whilst uh, strapped up and in a, in a sling with uh, <laughs> yeah, stitches in, at which point the organisers said, we're not going to allow you to do it. You know, but you've just had surgery. So unfortunately I had to pull out and I, I suppose that's unfinished business. But at the same time, I knew a few friends, uh, who were ocean rowers. Uh, and one of them a year or two after that has said, could I join them on an ocean row? But it was very short notice. Um, and I didn't have the time or the funds to put to it. So it's something which I'd known about for, for quite a while. And then in lockdown, I was at a friend's house and we were, uh, we were at a barbecue and having a few beers and he was talking about how he's putting together a team to row the Atlantic that December. And this was June of 2020. And I said to him, I've always been fascinated by this. I know quite a lot. And he, and he said, quite surprisingly, how much do you know? I was like, well, actually this, this and this. And he's like, oh, wow, you really do know. I said, yeah. And in lockdown, I think a lot of us, you know, I think it's out of Peloton. I can see in the back of your room. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, you know Peloton, we've got on the Pelotons and home gyms. And so I was actually in a pretty fit state at that stage. And I said, look, I'm really keen. So I spoke to Geordie, my business partner. I said, look, here's an opportunity. And at the same time at Polaris, we were creating a charity called the Polaris Foundation, a registered charity here in the UK. I said, look, the charity is going to come online. Why don't we, you know, why don't I grow in aid of the Polaris Foundation? And to be honest, I don't think there's a better time to row the Atlantic with everything that's going on with the lockdown, because ultimately you have to have, you know, two, nearly two months of window to take off, which is pretty hard for the, the best of times. But during lockdown, it, it kind of was more workable. And so I agreed to join a team in yeah, the end of June uh, 2020. And then we set off from Lagomera um, in the Canary Islands on the 12th of December 2020. Um, so it wasn't a huge amount of time. 
between you know being saying yes and getting ready. And how did you, um, given that it was sorry, given that it was a, a lockdown yeah. situation for m- most of the world, and I know one of your teammates was over here in the states. How did you guys actually manage to train together, if at all? Yeah, it was it was damn hard. Luckily for me, the other three had been together for you know a good four months before that, but they've been training remotely. We had an amazing coach, a guy called Gus Barton here in the UK, who's an ocean going coach. We put together an absolute hellish training program, hellish in the best way possible to get us ready. And but we all did that remotely and then we'd film our sessions uh in our gardens and then send it to each other and go, look, this is these are my numbers, this is what I've been doing. And then when lockdown eased up for a little bit in the summer, we got together as quickly as possible. Dixon in the US flew over and he came over for 10 days and we went to Burnham and Sea and did all the courses that we had to do. So from our VHF radio course, our survival at sea course, navigational course, and then actually getting onto a rowboat as well. Mm. That's a pretty important part <laughs> before you embark. And considering three of us had never rowed before, and only one of the team, Todd, had actually done any rowing at school. It was all pretty alien to us. So we had to really get cracking as quick as possible. And part of the prerequisites of actually entering the race are those courses. But you also have to log 120 hours on the boat as a team as well. So in October of 2020, Dixon flew over and he stayed with me for a month. And then we went up to the boat up onto the east coast and Burnham uh, and did three weekends in a row weekends out on the boat to clock our hours uh, and to really gel and then the fourth weekend we had to pack the boat because uh, at the end of October it was then being shipped to uh, the Canary Islands so with everything that we needed so it was a pretty fast and furious and getting ready and obviously you can train physically but the mental endurance side of things is key and that is harder to prepare for. So how did you make sure that you guys were in the right mindset going into the competition? Yeah, so the, the physical side, we didn't actually do, we, you do 120 hours on the boat and we did quite a bit of time on the, the ergo, on the rowing machine, which is, yeah, I think, the devil's device. Um, it really is pretty painful. And we built up to rowing uh, marathons on, on the machine, so 26 miles. But then did a lot of mobility training, uh, but also cross training. So running, cycling and compound weight lifting. So that was the physical, but you're absolutely right. The mental side, we had to sit down. We, we spoke at length about. And really, if you look at the demographic of who we are, we are four, you know, 30 year old males who, you know, categorically probably don't talk much about their emotions and feelings, you know, openly, certainly not with the boys, as we would say. And we needed to challenge that. And we needed to talk very openly because, you know, in our case, we were on that boat for 36 days and there is no getting off. It's unsupported. And you've got the big blue ocean around you. And at you know, a certain moment in that race, when you're halfway across the Atlantic, you're actually closer to people on the International Space Station than anyone to land. So it really is you, the boat, and the elements. And you're never quite sure about what's going to be thrown at you. If that's just extreme exhaustion, 
from the physical outlay that you're going through to then the mental pressure of being laid on top of that to deal with the environment yeah. and you know what scenario you may or may not have thought about to then the emotional element as well. We actually we went into quite a few sessions and so long and hard and challenged each other and we opened up quite a lot and I'm you know, not, not afraid to share that there were definitely some tears amongst us as as we spoke about certain elements of that and that was some of the pressures that were happening at home and in our family lives and our relationships to you know some things from validation as as children and you know validation from our parents um you know across the board so everyone had something different you know from all of those different areas and what it meant to us to be able to partake in this and what we wanted to get from it but it didn't stop there we actually really then started to you know scratch at that itch and we worked with a couple of people to then understand what does that mean and then also ask each other when you say a couple of people do you mean like therapists therapists yeah and and coaches like group therapy uh no individually yeah and then what we brought back in uh but then also asking you how do you react to certain scenarios and how do you want to be treated in a scenario so if you hear something from home you know, on the satellite phone calling back that's upset you or you're feeling homesick, just as one example. Do you want people to be around you and talk to you or actually do you want just some time to yourself and knowing, you know, those those indicators? Because if you do the opposite of what someone wants, you can then, you know, ignite that little bit of tinder and call cause a flame. Uh, ultimately and that we wanted to have a, a calm boat and you know understanding each other and, and also you know, what is your routine when you wake up at home you know, some people you know, they just want to be left alone they don't want to talk to anyone they want to get that cup of coffee sit down they listen to the news what have you and then half an hour later they're ready to go see the world and get out there others are like right i'm out of bed let's go and immediately engage them now that, that changes when you're doing a two hours on, two hours off routine. But ultimately, there's some element of it that still stays true. And understanding those different touch points as well was really key to having a unity as a team. That's so that was, that was a big part. I'm so impressed with how you guys went about that. It's very, I, I don't know, maybe that's just something that everyone does under these kinds of circumstances but um but i'm impressed that you went as far as like coaching and therapy and figuring out exactly like how everyone likes to begin their day it sounds like you were really thorough and i imagine that built a lot of trust between you which was needed for an epic journey like this it's a huge challenge yeah. i talked about the toughest you know race in the you know, land-based race in the world i purely think and this one the rowing is deemed as the toughest rowing race in the world i'd actually say it's probably the toughest race because there is no get out, you know, with pretty much anything on land, you know, you can get out and you know, someone's going to pick you up within a couple of hours or what have you. If something happens to you on this rowing race, you know, if you have to abandon ship and get in the life raft, you could be in that for one day to five days to 10 days until a passing ship, container ship, cargo ship goes past to sweep you up. And there really is no escape from everyone else as well because it's a it's a 28 foot rowing boat so you can't run 100 feet off somewhere else and go and just take some time out and 
you are going about everything you would do on land in front of each other. So you're going to loo in front of each other. By the end of 36 days, you've seen enough of your, you know, teammates going to loo in front of you. Um, <laughs> which is, yeah, just something you've got to get your, your mind around. So yeah, everything else, you, you've got to really, you work at it and be there for each other, but also be sympathetic um, mm. as well. So speaking of going to the toilet in front of one another, um, my next question was going to be, once you actually began the race, what does a typical day on the ocean look like? How do you organize sleep, eating, bathing? You know, you're in this tiny space. You're there with each other all the time. How does it work? Yeah, so you, you have the, the boat is split into you know, two ends. Uh, and um, you have a cabin at each end. Um, the presidential palatial cabin is up in the front. <laughs> um, and the working end at the back where your legs actually go underneath the deck of where you're rowing, so small in the back, has all of the navigation, the radios, and the auto helm as well. I was in the back, the rear cabin, with the largest guy on the team, uh, Todd. So if you're both in there, it's pretty cosy. Uh, to say the least. But you're rowing on a two hours on, two hours off routine, which uh, equals to two people rowing at any one time. And so you never actually row with your cabin mate um, because you're always rotating on and off. Uh, but you get an hour each with the, the other boys in, in the front cabin. And really, so that two hours on, two hours off is for 24 hours a day and for 36 days. There's a few changes in there that actually we as a team elected that we'll try and give two hours extra per person each day. And because you can have up to three people rowing at a time. So if you're feeling good, you go, I do an extra 20 minutes or an extra 30 minutes. I'm going to reduce my recovery time, but having three people row at one time obviously is, you know, faster and we're trying to make up time, et cetera. But then it becomes pretty grueling as well because you're reducing your rest. To be honest, though, in the night, you're getting the most amount of sleep. In the day, it starts to heat up so much that it gets to north of 90 Fahrenheit, up to 100 Fahrenheit in the cabins in the, in the heat of the day. So you're not really sleeping at that stage. Uh, you're naked in the cabin trying to cool down um, and the doors supposedly closed all the time because uh, you, if you capsize, you don't want the, the cabins to fill up with water. Um, so there isn't much air circulation either. So it's pretty unpleasant. So at night, when you come off, we have this golden seven minutes that we set. And that, that seven minutes is set down into the following. You get off the oars, get into the cabin, you get some baby wipes kind of wipe your face down and then move down your body, wipe your armpits and then your, your groin uh, area. Always best to do it in routine from head down and <laughs> um, the other way up. <laughs> and once you've done that, uh, we actually had a, a couple of Theraguns on board, which we could have you know, a minute massage with, which would get into anything that was particularly niggling. And so they, they were unbelievable. And then certainly in the evening, you still need to keep the nutrition going. We'd have our main meals in the day where you're, you're not trying to get sleep so quickly, so you eat that freeze-dried ration, which you've added water to more slowly. 
But in the evenings, we had nut butters. And in two mouthfuls, you could take on approximately 800 calories of these nut butters. And then you put earplugs in, eye mask on, and try and get an hour and a half sleep before then waking up and preparing yourself, either getting a drink ready or you know getting your your audio book or playlist ready that you want to put on to kind of motivate you. Or if it's raining outside, trying to find you know the right combination of Gore-Tex jacket or or even worse, you know, full wet weather, you know, storm clothing on. So um, you'd need a good 10 minutes you know, to get ready for that. So that was very much the routine. But then in the day, as you're not sleeping, you've got to do things on the boat. So you've got to make water every single day, approximately 40 litres of water uh, through a water maker. Um, Wait, well, how does that um, work? So that sucks in salt water, ocean water, through a hydraulic system with very high pressurised arm, which pushes the salt water through a membrane and osmosis, it takes every single mineral, uh, the salt being it, and everything else out of the water, so you get pure H2O. And we're drinking or using approximately 10 litres per person per day. But we had to add in then salt and electrolytes into that because it's pure water. So uh, we're very lucky to sponsored by an American firm called LMNT, Element, who provide these sachets, which you know, is phenomenal. And that would really keep us going. And then it's checking in on the sat phone with our weather man and router to make sure we're still on the right bearing course. Um, you're having to change the auto helm every six hours approximately. And then also making sure the boat's uh, you know, operable. So servicing the bearings and other elements, you know, having to do any repairs. And then approximately every six or seven days, we're getting into the water as well, whilst we've got a, a big line tied to us uh, and scrubbing the bottom of the boat because, yeah, about every six to seven days, you'd start to get growth on the bottom of the boat, you know, algae and you know, barnacles that could, you could potentially be there. So you're getting in in, in the water. And that's a pretty awesome moment, though, when you're diving into the Atlantic Ocean, you're completely naked and looking down, and you know, it's the deep, 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 dark blue, and it just you don't know what's down there, and you just keep on going. <laughs> that's an incredible schedule. Do you, an hour and a half is long enough to get in one full sleep cycle, right? But how many of those, like, how many hours approximately do you think you got of rest per day? I think sleep, we were probably getting about four and a half hours in a 24-hour period. Did you feel like you were yeah. going a bit crazy? <laughs> so the first seven days are probably the most hellish experience you could have because your body just doesn't know if it's coming or going. And on day two or three, we were all fully hallucinating. I had a drone war with three or four drones, you know, having a war above my head in the sky. and. Uh, uh, and I was looking out to on the ocean and seeing wood blocks. You know that you'd be going for a country walk in the UK round. So that was pretty and pterodactyls, very bizarre. <laughs> um, so that makes it quite fun and mesmerising. Mix that with you know the amazingness of the, the cycloplankton luminescence running down the side of the boat. You feel like you're in you know the film Avatar. 
uh, every stroke, this luminescence going down, it's pretty incredible. But your mind is playing games on you. But literally, in our training, we've been talked about it and spoken to lots of ocean roads, but day seven comes and something clicks and your body adjusts and it gets into this new rhythm. And I think that's, again, like that mind over matter and the mental resilience piece, your body going, okay, this is where we are. Let's get on with it. And from day seven onwards, you suddenly feel reborn and you'd get up after an hour and a half sleep and you're like, yeah, I, I feel as fresh as I could you know, be. I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to absolutely smash this session. And you, know, you could get up like that for five, six sessions in a row. And then one day you might think, oh, I'm pretty tired now. And you say that. But that's where we bring in other elements and through the training and understanding you know, where people's tiredness was coming in and how they wanted to be when that's. But it's like, right, let's talk about, you know, what are you dreaming about? What, what can't you wait to, you know, see? Who can't you wait to see? What about eat or drink? You know, different things like that. Or is it putting on a playlist, which is going to, you know, bring up the vibe? Well, actually, you just want something which, you know, you want an education and listen for an audio book or you know, a podcast that you've downloaded. And everyone was slightly different. So... Yeah, having that innate understanding of what your body needs at the time was um, pretty tremendous, for sure. Were there any moments where you were genuinely fearing for your safety out there? Yeah, I think we we had a couple of horrendous storms. And it just happened to coincide with essentially like Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and New Year's Eve. Which made him probably some of the worst Christmases and years I've, I've ever had. And that's saying something considering I've spent, you know, two Christmases and two Christmas Eves in Afghanistan as well. So, but we had 40 foot swells, 15 foot waves breaking on top of us and things that you'd only ever imagine seeing in a Hollywood film in terms of the roughness of the seas. And one particular storm, one of the, our teammates, was suffering from seasickness. It was the only time throughout the entire road. So we were down to three people. And then some of our kits started to break. So one of the guys who was off at the time started to fix that. And Dixon and I were actually rowing at the stage. And we said, well, there's no point in, you know, Todd coming out. He's, he's fixing the kit and trying to get the comms back up and running and, and everything else. So, we might as well run. We ended up running for six hours through the storm and wearing full musto ocean storm kit. And I thought I was probably going to drown because of the rain, not because of the waves and water. It's just that intensity of rain coming down. And because it's an open cockpit that you're rowing in, you've got a climbing harness that you've cut the leg parts off just around your waist and then a leash which attaches you to the boat. And then the sides are there, you know, they're six inches above the water and that's it. So, you know, you are constantly being sprayed by salt water, seawater coming over, the rain coming down. And then the next thing you see is thunder and lightning and you're like, good God, this is something. I should be on a ride at Universal Studios. <laughs> more, more. Uh, you know, that's the best you could kind of imagine it. Then your, your mind can wander. So you've got to be very careful of that. And you've got to go, right, there's a mission here and that's keep on rowing. Mm-hmm. Um, if it gets so bad and really so bad means that you're starting to go backwards, 
only then have one resort. And there's no point in rowing at that stage because you're just going to burn so much energy that you deploy what we call a power anchor. Uh, and a power anchor is essentially a giant parachute that we pull out on, that we put out underwater and it inflates and it stops you going backwards, um, as quickly as you might do, um, and reduces that drift. And you put it out at a hundred meters or more on a long line and it floats underneath the water. It's a pretty miserable day when you've got to put that out because invariably that means the weather is horrendous. And you are being tossed around, you know, like being in a, a tumble dryer. And so therefore you're not outside, you're in the cabin and there's two of you in there. And so, yeah, it's very much big spoon, little spoon. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's when you realize that, uh, you're getting to know each other even closer than you thought you did anyway from being on the boat. Um, and yeah, we were very lucky. We only had to do that for a few hours. There's been teams in this race which have done it for four days, five days. Yeah, and that is, that's another mental hurdle to get over altogether. Oh my um, God. That, I mean, that just sounds terrifying. I don't, I mean, I would also be, <laughs> I'd be so worried that we would like capsize and then a shark would come and get me. That would be the main thing that would be on my mind. <laughs> Did you have any weird um, wildlife encounters? Yeah, so we had we had some pretty amazing wildlife experiences. Mm. Uh, we had a we had a minky whale following us for uh, two or three days, and that was incredibly friendly and would just pop up, and you know, it was it was fantastic to see that. And you know, it was yeah, you know, brought a smile to your face because you know, it would come up every thirty minutes or more or less, and to have it for a couple of days around us was pretty cool. We had amazing pod of dolphins. Um, playing in the waves for three or four hours and it, it seemed like it had mastered you know a thousand um i don't know if they can even get the you know, pods get to that big but they just kept coming through the waves you know, hour after hour so that was pretty awesome as well um and then there was a humpback whale which breached oh. about 50 meters from us so that was pretty special close enough um i don't think we'd like it liked it any closer but really one of the, the kind of central moments of our row was when we were two thirds of the way in, approximately a thousand miles from Antigua from the finish line. And by this stage, we're pretty exhausted. You know, we're 26 days or there or thereabouts. And, um, it was in the afternoon and I just finished my session. I was in the cabin trying to get some sleep. It was about, yeah. 97 Fahrenheit, um, in the cabin. It was pretty, pretty unbearable. And I'm just starting to drift off. And suddenly, out of nowhere, mighty bang hits the boat. Crikey. Now we've been hit by rogue waves before. And a rogue wave will come out of nowhere. And it could be the flattest ocean there is. And suddenly this wave will just roll through. And some of them can be pretty big, you know, seven foot, eight foot, even 15 foot. When that hits the boat, it, it feels like a ton of bricks hitting the boat. So I immediately thought maybe it was another wave. We shouted to Todd and Dixon, who were uh, rowing at the time, like, are you okay? And they both said, we're absolutely fine. Uh, but that was big. We don't know what it was. I was like, well, I quantify big. They said, well, about 10 to 12 foot. So, right. Okay. They said, we're sure it's damaged the boat because it shifted the boat 
two or three foot in the water. I'm pretty tired. And by this stage, you also feel impenetrable in the boat that because if, if you cut the boat in half, both of those cabins will float independently if they're sealed. You know, the boats are so impressive. So in a storm, you get in there and that's your safe haven. You lock yourself in and you feel, you know, that's a few home comforts in and around you. You eat, you get ready and you get some sleep and it could be all chaos breaking loose outside. So I thought, well, we're absolutely fine. Um, I don't need to really worry about this. And I decided to, you know, lay back down on my side. And as I was on my side, my hand just dropped past my thigh and less than half an inch from my thigh was this foreign object, uh, which I used many expletives um, as I, as I stroked my hand. Um, and the boy's like, my God, what's happened? And I looked down, I opened the, opened the door to the cabin and shouted rather alarmingly, we've been penetrated. <laughs> um, uh, and I don't think they quite knew how to take it. And they were, what an earthy me and said, I don't know what it is, but there was a giant spike, which is about eight inches between my legs. <gasps> um, on further inspection uh, and analysis, it was the build from the blue marlin. And lo and behold, the blue marlin had been with for two days before we'd had a giant tuna basking in the shadow of the boat. And having spoken to some marine biologists and, and other people, they, their thinking is that the, the tuna was basking in the shadow and the blue marlin saw it and came up onto the ghetto. And an adult blue marlin is about 10 to 12 feet. Yeah, see, um, I didn't realize how big they were they until get really big. I'm adding yeah. them to my list of terrifying things <laughs> in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, they're like dinosaurs of the sea. Um, yeah. And, and they can swim at about 60 miles an hour as well. Um, so all in all, when that hits you, it just comes straight through the boat. So after telling the boys what had happened, I then suddenly realized that, you know, we seem to be taking on an awful lot of water. And so I don't want to cause any more undue alarm or attention, but we are taking on a lot of water. And I seem to be sat in about two foot of water right now. This was something we had not planned for ever in any training scenario, in any of that kind of mental resilience piece, you know, et cetera. But I think naturally your body kicks in and maybe that's part of the military training and some of the preparation that we had done. Jono, my other mate, uh, teammate who had been in the military immediately, he was on off shift at, in the front. He came down. Todd and Dixon said, right, we're just going to concentrate on rowing. So good. And John and I, over the next six hours, had to hand pump the cabin constantly and then use epoxy resin to fix this hole in the boat. And I still have now the bill to the marlin. So we had to hacksaw it off. Wait, so did he, did he get stuck? So he, he hit the boat and it snapped off. Oh, it snapped and he off. Swam off. Oh. Yeah. And that is, it happens quite regularly, oh. um, apparently. So the marlin should be okay <laughs> for all the listeners. But we then, yeah, we then had to hacksaw because I had this eight inches of bill into the cabin, which had gone through the mattress. And there it was. So, uh, even it. Yeah. <laughs> It's a very cool souvenir. It's, it's been around the world with me a couple of times. It's done a few talks and presentations. And when we were actually on the finish line in Antigua, 
there's a great photo of us holding a banner saying we rode the Atlantic. And then we got the Union Jack and the Stars and Stripes flags all around us. And we're all kind of giving this and I'm holding the Marlin in my hand. <laughs> the trophy. So, so that was probably an encounter with nature that we had never encountered on having, but was a pretty mega moment uh, for us as a team and also uh, across the race as well. You know, we, the kind of emergency call that we had to put into Race HQ back in the UK um, was very much like putting in an emergency call when we were in Afghanistan as well. Kind of, you know, this is the situation. This is, you know, what we're doing about it. And, you know, this is how we're progressing. And there was great support from the team in the UK and on the phone and possible, you know, ways that we could deal with the scenario. And, you know, they were even looking at, you know, on a wider scheme, you know, uh, what kind of tankers um, or cargo ships were anywhere near us um, and I think the closest was a couple of days away so um, but luckily we were able to repair the boat um, and crack on uh, but it certainly wasn't something that we ever thought we'd have to, you know, have to encounter or even in our wildest dreams imagine that would happen. Wow well very resourceful good job guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you just mentioned then arriving and finishing the race. I'd love to hear about that final day and how you guys felt as you were approaching your final destination, Antigua, right? Yeah, Antigua. Yeah. I think that's the best part about the race, finishing in Antigua. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hope you took a vacation kind of, at the end. <laughs> yeah, you salivate about that, that rum punch. The craziest thing about finishing the race, people have spoken to us about this, is that there's one thing that you would never think you experience as one of the senses uh, in coming to finishing a race. And there's that, and that one sense is smell. And you can actually smell the land before you can see it. And it is quite bizarre. And because normally it's the other way around, right? You can yeah, smell the ocean before you can see completely. it. Completely. So interesting. And, um, so, to have that kind of sensory experience actually come into play and you're like, I can smell something different. And that's saying something because we're pretty smelly by that stage as well. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you can smell the land and you can smell the soil and the earth. And I think that was actually one of the most incredible parts of it. And then suddenly, an hour or two later, you can start to see land and the way that picks you up is just tremendous because you know it's coming to an end and everything you've been through is culminating um, very quickly but also we knew the kind of welcome party that we had waiting for us from uh, family and friends i don't think anything's going to prepare us for for that moment and we were very lucky to have a lot of support managed to make it to Antigua, even though it was locked down, but also come out and see us and line, you know, the cliffs as you're rowing into English Harbour. And then quite a few people out on pedalos and other boats. We had about seven or eight boats around us. And actually as you come in, you have a load of super yachts all lined up as well. And they're blasting their horns as well. And then as you cross the finish line and we're rowing through yeah, we're imagining it something like we're finishing the, the famous Oxford and Cambridge boat race on the Thames here, going for it. We're probably crawling over because we're so exhausted. 
but that moment where I remember Jono, uh, I was navigating at that stage. So Han and, you know, driving the, the boat and the, the other three are rowing. And that moment, Jono just threw his arms off and himself backwards, you know, and the oars went down to the side. And then the next thing you do is just reach in and we've prepped it already and got the flares out that, you know, we had in case of emergency and what have you. And you just stand up and you're holding two flares blazing in your, in your arms. And it's phenomenal. And there's nothing quite like it. You're the emotions that are running through you that you've completed this mammoth event. And you've actually made it there because at times you would I ever make it, you know, but as a team, uh, as well. And then to have friends and family all around. Uh, welcome you in and a lot of strangers because a lot of people in Antigua hear about it you know, and they come down and see you in and then the next thing you have to encounter is trying to walk on land <laughs> it's quite bizarre because you have you have certainly got sea legs and rather than being seasick you become land sick in many respects so you think you're going to get up and just step on and run up to meet people your legs are all over the place and you know those first I don't know, 20, 30, 40 steps are just, <laughs> yeah, you're holding on to people. It's quite funny. And, you know, our calves are, you know, diminished because you don't really use your calf muscles. You do about 10 steps in 24 hours on the boat because it's so small. So, you know, I lost uh, 22 pounds during the race, even though I was eating 7,000 calories a day. Oh, my um, God. Did you have um, to gain weight before you left? I imagine so. so. Yeah, that's not, that's not a hard thing for me to gain the weight. So, um, yeah, that was an easy part. One of the guys, Dixon, is incredibly harmful. He's, he's so lean and his metabolism is so high. Actually, when I, when he came to the UK to live with me for a month, I introduced him to the absolute British delight of clotted cream. Oh, and, clotted um, cream on, on top of ice cream. So decadent. Uh, so, so good. <laughs> so he had never had it. And he was like, God, what is this? <laughs> and, um, it was about the only thing that would put weight on the man. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're polar opposites of that. So I found it very easy. But yeah, 22 pounds is a lot to lose in 36 days and eating 7,000 calories a day. So when you step off that boat, yeah, you're pretty ravenous. And we've been eating freeze dried rations and these nut butters and, you know, various other things from, you know, uh, dried fruit and, and trail mix, uh, then some, you know, chocolate bars and, you know, little bits of what we would call morale to pick us up at times. Uh, but that first meal that you have, and we all opted to have burgers and, and fries and, uh, we had a magnum of Bollinger champagne, you know, given to us. Um, I, it could have been the worst burger in the world, but it tasted like the best and it was just, it was, it was so juicy and the moisture in it, you know, you, that's what you've been missing and a bit of salad as well. Um, so wash down with some champagne was pretty tremendous. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Did you, how many other competitors were there and did you see any of them that day that you arrived? No. So we, we came second in the race and, you know, uh, I think our Marlin moment really ruined our chances of, uh, of winning that. So, you know, we came in. A few hours, you know, behind the race winners. Um, but on day one, we saw teams because as you're staggered out off the start line, 
and then that first night you see the pilot light and then it's gone. And because you're sat so low in the water, it's very hard to see anyone, even if they're half a mile away or, or a mile away. Uh, so we didn't see anyone else from, from the race. And in our year, there was, I think, 26 boats uh, competing. So, you know, it's a fair few. It was reduced numbers because of the lockdown and not all teams being able to get to the start line that year. And then I think the next team came in 24 hours, 36 hours after us. And then, yeah, and then there's a strong trickle for the next week or two of teams coming through. Yeah. And you were raising money for the Polaris Foundation. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about the foundation and the work that you guys do. So the, the foundation, really, when we started, Jordi and I started Polaris, we wanted to give back right from the beginning. That was really important for us. And then we, a couple of years in, we realized that it's one thing actually saying it and doing it in a little way, but we wanted to really formalize this far more. And so the Polaris Foundation was really you know, born in the, in the lockdown. It allows us to raise funds and put it into matters that really mean something to us and support other charities and initiatives out around the world. And predominantly, that is in a lot of places where we are taking our clients and where we're operating. The beauty is that you know a lot of people aren't quite sure about charities operating abroad and what they're actually doing, etc. The foundation can take away all of that, you know, kind of due diligence and hard work to make sure that they are bona fide and they're actually doing what they're doing. And you know, if you're UK uh, taxpayer, there's there's benefits of supporting the Cross Foundation to raise increase the funds because they're matched by the government, etc. through gift share. But then We've done the due diligence on the local charities and then we can deploy the funds. Through the race, we're able to support uh, anti-poaching charity um, working in Africa and being able to put rangers through their kind of ranger school to work on um, the front line of anti-poaching. Um, so a, a tremendous cause and you know, hopefully uh, is really making a difference in being able to preserve the wildlife that you know, we want to send our clients to go and see. And for the clients, they're able to support that. But also, a lot of them now really want to get their hands dirty. And we, we can take clients you know, to go and see the work of the charity uh, and to you know, go out on patrol with the rangers if that's so uh, what they want. Um, it doesn't all have to be as kind of full on as that. I've taken clients diving and um, in Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, and we've planted coral in a, in a coral regeneration program. You know, um, we've taken scientists down to Antarctica uh, to count the penguin colonies and things like that. And we've had a client's 12 year old daughter out with the scientists, keeping up quite the penguin poop and, you know, helping analyze it and, you know, being right there at the, uh, at the coal face. So, the foundation is doing a lot of work on that. Um, it's not just wildlife, but it's also conservation. And there is an element of humanitarian as well. Um, but it's where we see, you know, projects and most need, but also where we are taking clients and they can see firsthand the benefits of where that, that money is being deployed and the change it can have as mm. well. And I know Polaris, your travel company creates you know, these unique bespoke trips often to remote places. 
Did rowing the Atlantic change the way you think about meaningful travel and how to create those experiences? Yeah, I, I don't encourage many clients to row the Atlantic. Um, I think we can do it in a far more luxurious way. Yeah, there are some out there who are interested, but a lot of it, a lot of them realize that there's, there's quicker and easier ways to cross the Atlantic. But I think this also links back to the days in the military because you would say a lot of what we're doing in the military isn't particularly luxurious travel. What it does, it, it really makes you appreciate what is you know, high-end travel and luxury travel and not become complacent um, in it because it's not available to everyone. But also, when we are offering it to our clients, to ensure it's at the best of you know, the service that it can be. Uh, but also going, how can we you know, change it and improve it? But also make sure it's connected and real to where we're going. You know, we, we really want people to understand the environment, the culture, the identity of you know, the places that we're going. And that they, they get beneath the, the, the soil of it and really start to live, eat and breathe it. And I think elements for me, like the row, really allow that to happen and remind you ultimately what mother nature's about. We can control a lot of things in this world, but we cannot control mother nature at all. And understanding the power and sometimes the ferocity of it. Um, but also the beauty of nature and wildlife. You know, I think we talked about some of those epic wildlife moments on the road, but also one of the, you know, the truly incredible nights was a meteor shower, which lasted hours and hours and hours. And it was mesmerizing, you know, and because there's no light pollution. You are this tiny, tiny little entity and you're looking up in the sky and shooting stars just raining down and you just think, wow, that is unbelievable. And most people in this world will only ever really see that through a documentary film or a Hollywood film or what have you. They'll never see that through their own eyes. And actually, through Polaris, if we can give people first-hand experiences of wildlife, nature, culture, etc. You know, we really are achieving our goal and, and changing their perspective on the world. Um, and I think that's why you know, we're incredibly privileged to be able to own and operate a business which delivers experiences like that. And in my view, and I think everyone here at Polaris, we have a great team and without the team, we would be nothing that, you know, we have that amazing ability uh, to do that. And there is no better education in life than learn travel. Mm, I 100% agree. So finally, how do you think this trip impacted your life and the person that you are today? <laughs> well, life changed quite a lot for me. Circumstances at home changed quite a bit. I moved to the US and to Austin. I am reminded and do remind myself there are easier ways to move to the US. <laughs> so that was, that was one thing. But it reminded me also that I need challenges in life. And that's, I think challenges allow us to develop uh, as humans, but also push uh, our boundaries and, and the frontiers of where we want to go. And if that's 
not just a challenge in the workspace, you know, where are we going to go next? What are we going to do next strategically? You know, the US market is a massive uh, strategic push for us at Polaris, and that's a great challenge to go. And how do we break into that market? But on in a world which is ever changing, and I think this harks back to right at the beginning of the row and talking about the mental resilience, but also sitting down as four you know, males in a boat and talking about our emotions and feelings, challenging ourselves to be better people and grow and learn. And I certainly did that. And actually, one of the best things I ever did was the employer full-time therapist. Um, and it's been tremendous um, to you know, just to, to check in with yourself, but also have someone else to, to talk to and go, it's okay to feel like that or to be able to, you know, learn and go, what does it mean if I feel like this? And what do I need in my life to be able to love myself and then to love others, but also to challenge myself as well? And part of that is a mental and the physical elements of it and wellness and now more so even for me that i've really started to take an even greater look into you know know, physical well-being in terms of you know what are we eating um i just enrolled in this zoe study where you wear continuous blood glucose monitor and you diarize everything you eat and do a number of tests and it's all about understanding your gut biome and actually how that can affect um, your immune system and everything else about you. And I think for so long, look, we haven't really, you know, paid enough attention as a population, you know, to what we ingest and eat to keep us going, but also the effects that it can have on our body. And so the challenges and changes that that will bring about. It's a really exciting era. I think we all live in that. We can talk about our emotions and feelings more than ever before. And it's okay to say that we have a therapist. We can go out and physically train ourselves with better understanding than we've ever had before. You know, you never you know, wear an Apple watch or what have you understand calorie counting and the steps you're doing to now actually understanding far more than ever before about what we're putting in our body. But then also, you know, how sleep is so important. I think that's another fallout from the row is understanding, you know, that golden kind of seven, seven and a half hours of sleep is something you don't get on the row, but you know, how that allows us to rest, recuperate, reduce stress, you know, rebuild when training, whatever. So all of these different dynamics. And that's why it's, yeah, it's a great time to, in a cheesy cliche way to be alive because it's, yeah, it's never been like that for anyone before. And it's, you know, technology is incredible. But I'd say, you know, having that all in the palm of your hand is phenomenal. Um, but also one of the best parts about the row was the lack of technology and not having any communication other than dialing out on a satellite phone and not having your messaging services, your social media going off nonstop, your emails, etc. And I, for one, am terrible about never putting my phone down. You know, get home from the office and I'm constantly on it as well. And it never stops. And I think it was a really good lesson for me to you know, just switch off and you don't have any of that distraction and making more time for each other. And you know, if you're in a relationship with someone actually going, I'm going to turn my phone off and put it down. And this is time between us. You know, and, you know, treasuring those moments because life can be, you know, can be very short at times. And, you know, um, you can get lost 
uh, very easily and not not give people the right time and attention, which is sad in you know, in many respects. You know, we want to be so much to so many people that sometimes we're not the best version of ourselves or giving enough of ourselves to the people closest to us. And that is that could be in a work relationship or in a personal relationship. And I think it's really important to drill into that and you know to, to remember that. I agree. That's a lovely note to end on. Jimmy, thank you. I've been on the edge of my seat for most of this conversation. <laughs> it's like such an adventure. I can't believe you managed to do that. It's incredible. So thank you for sharing. Um, and please Pleasure. let us know where people can find you on the internet. Yes. So obviously, Polaris uh, is polarisx.com and then PolarisX on Instagram. And then myself, the lots of more rowing content is Jimmy Alexander Carroll uh, on Instagram. Before you go, I'd love to do a travel-related quickfire round, if you're open to it. Yeah, okay. absolutely. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? Being true wildlife up front person um, in its natural habitat. We are diluted because of zoos and safari parks. Actually seeing wildlife in their natural habitat and seeing how they interact and that chain of life, I think is truly mesmerizing. Mm, I mean, you sounds like you got a private performance from some whales. So that was pretty special. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, what's the one thing you never, ever travel without? That has changed now. It is Apple AirTags. Because I put an Apple AirTag in every single bag or a high value item. And when airlines inherently lose your bags, uh, you know where it is immediately and you can track it and try and retrieve it. Because there's nothing worse than being without baggage. Uh, but also, you know, it, be it a camera or on a bicycle or something like that, they've become invaluable to me, AirTags. Previously, it would have been video or camera equipment to uh, capture what I'm seeing so I can share it with others. Um, that would have been an old classic 35mm film camera, now a digital camera, uh, and, and a drone has kind of been the absolute staple for the last few years. A lot of people don't get to see what we see, and I want to share that with as many people as possible. AirTags is a great hack, actually. I've never thought of that before, but especially right now when so many airlines are losing bags, oh. it's essential. Uh, yeah. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? I would go to the moon. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good answer. Uh, yeah. At Polaris, we really like to break the experiences down into what we call an asymmetric approach. And an asymmetric approach approaches back from the military days and that's looking at everything from above in the air on the surface and then subsurface and you get a very dis a different perspective of wherever you are if you can have a look at it from those three different approaches and i think looking at the world from above you know it's been so rare and to so few people that we are now in a realm and an age where that's going to be far more achievable to so many more. And it's going to change drastically in the next 10 years. You know, we've seen it over the last couple of years. 
but it's something which has always, you know, kind of just absolutely captured my imagination and mind. And to look at, you know, the weather systems and the beauty of the globe from above would just be tremendous. What's a lesser known destination that you would recommend to other travelers? Papua New Guinea uh, is tr- tremendous. Why? Wonderful, wonderful environment from amazing jungles and coastlines, incredible diving, you know, mad sinkholes that we've taken, take helicopters into and dive down into and land and get paddleboards and, you know, paddleboard out on the rivers which come out of that. But then also amazing wildlife as well. And then tribes and actually seeing tribes in their true habitat, you know, which take days and days and days to get into. And we're lucky through you know, modern technology and helicopters and things like that. We can fly in and through amazing people that we have interlocutors that get us access and seeing how these people live. It's just mind blowing. Um, and I think in a modern world where we are so connected and, you know, we can have a call from either side of the pond or wherever it may be. And then to see tribes where they're con- completely disconnected from that and how they go about their life is, I find fascinating. And it's like in looking back in time and we need to preserve them as well. And, you know, because the world is a much smaller place now, but we need to preserve these identities and you know, and realize that, that not all of the world needs to become too overpopulated and you know urban and everything else that comes with that. And finally, where is next on your bucket list? Next on my bucket list is Japan. I've never been to Japan. Um, it's a super hot topic right now. Um, lots and lots of people wanting to go there. What I love is this difference between ancient Japan and modern Japan, this civilization and the actual countryside itself as well, and the food and the, the cuisine around Japan is just tremendous. And there's so many different things coming at you. Thank you so much, Jimmy. It's been so great having you. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Esme. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.